Hello and welcome to the show. My name's Lucy Taylor from Make Work Play, an organization on a mission to use the power of play to unlock potential and possibility. And I'm Zuki Stewart from Playfield, a startup helping organizations to enable everyone to rediscover their creativity through playful wonder and serendipity. Together we are Why Play Works, the podcast that speaks to people radically reshaping the idea of work as play. In this episode, I'll be interviewing the wonderful Alison James, who's part of a playful revolution in higher education. Alison is Professor Emerita of Learning and Teaching at the University of Winchester and a UK National Teaching Fellow and Principal Fellow, HEA. She has held numerous posts in higher education, including Associate Dean of Learning and Teaching at the London College of Fashion and Director of Academic Quality and Development at Winchester University. Her extensive teaching experience includes managing, examining and teaching on PG Cert provision in academic practice at university, into which she has brought her experience as a playful, creative educator. Since late 2019, Alison has been a freelance academic with a portfolio including coaching, consultancy, staff development, course and book reviews, PhD examinations, workshops and speaking engagements. She's a trained facilitator of the Lego Serious Play Method and the co-designer of a new version of its facilitator training set specifically in the context of higher education. Alison recently undertook a three-year study called The Value of Play in Higher Education, funded by the Imagination Lab Foundation. In this study, she presents clear evidence of the positive impact of playful learning, including it being highly inclusive and transferable across disciplines. She challenges views that play is fluffy and insubstantial and addresses the barriers and misperceptions that playful learning can face. She suggests ways to nurture a positive play culture in compulsory and post-compulsory education. In this episode, we explore how working with our hands can enhance reflective practice, the value of the unexpected, and how we can reclaim the playfulness of our youth. So, Alison, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's lovely to have you here. I'd love if we could begin with you telling me a little bit in your own words about what it is you do and how play fits in. I work with individuals and organisations and I do research into how play, creativity and imagination can enable people to to look at things differently, to extend their own kinds of practices and potential and all the rest of it. I've always seen my role as an educator or manager as being that of facilitator or somebody who unlocks conversations, ideas, capabilities in people, including myself. I left full-time university working. I, essentially, I retired. I retired early. And the thing that I found was I didn't have a problem with the word retirement because to me it was just, it was, it was just a descriptor, like saying manager or student or teacher or farmer or welder or you know whatever it's just it's just a word but what I came across time and again was people who just thought I was I'd packed up I'd given up I was waiting for God you know this notion that there's all these endings if you retire and so the word retired the word retired seemed to give other people the wrong impression I wasn't bothered by it um but other people 
weren't quite sure what that meant. You know, had I taken up knitting? Was I just gazing out of a window? <laughs> and, and, I, and to me, I've never felt more busy, more creative, more excited by life. So that's where I turn to the word free range because it kind of allows me to kind of mooch about and do and do whatever so that I could concentrate on this three-year research study that I've just completed, which was funded by the Imagination Lab Foundation. I would love to take you back in time. Tell me about your playful child self. Well, it was all about the dirt. All about the dirt. I loved gardening, mud pies, being physically active, getting grubby, uh, being outside. I think and this is something I really, that has really struck me the more I've done work with play and creativity, especially in relation to our formal education, is I was, I was a very imaginative child. And I don't say that with vanity, I just was. And by the time I was 11, it was clear that, you know, you, it was time for you to do other things. So my mm. childhood very much, I was very much, you know, I loved creating worlds, fantasy worlds. Um, my, my friend over the road and I had this game that we used to play, this invented world we inhabited, which was housed in the garden shed. Um, like I said, you know, mud pies, I probably did the most, you know, illustrious gardeners these days would be dying when they would have told you <laughs> I, I would make mud cakes, ice them with some kind of lime solution which probably is like sort of chemical warfare and then I'd happily distribute them around <laughs> the garden amazing anything ever grew um I loved lego from tiny I loved lego I loved dolls houses anything where you could build create make up stories you know do do whatever and and so I loved all of that and then I went to secondary school and there, there were two things really stood out when I look back on those times, one was I went off to secondary school still thinking it was okay to talk about mud, mud pies and make-believe. And you suddenly realize that everybody around you, your teachers, your peers, and your parents, and your everybody, they want you to be something else. And so mm. I learned it was like having a dirty secret. Well, I guess it generally was a dirty secret. And, and I do remember as a kid thinking, I'm, I'm not doing life right because I still like mud and make-believe, but I'm not supposed to anymore. So clearly I'm doing it wrong and now I've got to be something else. So it was, and I, and, you know, and I remember one time a, a, a kid at school teased me um, because they'd come, to, they'd come to play at my house and I'd suggested why didn't we go make mud pies. And this, this person sort of, you know, released this bombshell and lots of people laughed. And I look back now and I think, why not? You know, what's wrong with that? You know, if you get to 25 and you won't still make mud pies, you do it. Except, of course, now we call it art or something. So I think I, think I was a very creative, playful child. So I came out of school, a bunch of good qualifications. And so ostensibly, I had a good education. But when I look back on it now, I just think, well, that was largely luck because I was, I was naturally disposed to be able to learn in those ways. And, but what also happened was there I was at 18 with my, with my bunch of perfectly respectable qualifications, but my creativity, my belief that it was either okay to paint and draw or that I was any good at painting and drawing or that that was a worthwhile pursuit, absolutely crushed out of me. And that was, that was a death and a loss that I wasn't aware of at the time. You, you just thought, well, I'm growing up, you know, I'm, I'm too grown up. And you see it actually yeah. in 
16 to 18 year olds who, when they go into further education or higher education, you know, they want to have the grown up stuff. And a number of people I've spoken to around play and creativity say that it's not always your 16 or 18 year olds who are most comfortable with it. You know, they, they think, they think they've moved on from all of that, but it's your mature students, you know, mature over 23, but who are actually you know, much more disposed to that because they've tried the whole grown up thing and they know that actually there's a much more variegated way of living. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so wins and losses, very playful child lost it in some respects. Although I think I always remained a playful adult. I just didn't label myself as, as that. And of course we could spend weeks talking about what do we even mean by playfulness. And it's been, it's, it was moving into working in creative arts education, um, in my early thirties, that, that there was this whole new world opened up for me, this whole new world where actually my skill set was very useful as that enabler, as we said, to start off with, but that here were these people around me to whom it was entirely natural to have a whole set, set of other talents, other ways of seeing the world, other ways of being able to express themselves. And it was just mind blowing. It was absolutely mind blowing. And I think that was where I became conscious of, of one of oh, a thousand lessons about how we get things a little bit skewy in our minds about what constitutes um, a valuable formal educational experience. Because when I told people, I worked for 11 years at the London College of Fashion, fantastic experience, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a fashion designer. I knew nothing about fashion. Um, and when I went, I, I remember telling a couple of people in, you know, traditional universities that I was going to the London College of Fashion. And, and it was amazing how people sort of thought the word fashion was something to giggle about. Not, obviously, people who actually worked in fashion and knew what it was about. And so just as we have with play, there were these sort of, these kind of suspicions or sort of innate prejudices about, you know, was fashion, ha, 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 was that a degree subject? And my golly, it is. And, and I, I had to learn that for myself. So that was an incredible eye-opener, you know, walking, walking into a place where just everybody did things differently to the ways that I'd seen people do them in other institutions. And that was fantastic because I then had this incredible time in which to reinvent all my teaching and learning practices and my support practices because most of the students there were visual learners. They were, they were creative learners. They, they didn't respond well to or, or their favorite pursuits weren't necessarily academic writing and formal essay construction and traditional this, that, and the other. You know, they needed and wanted other things and they had so much to give and share if you were able to speak that language, if you were able to work in ways that unlocked them. And so without even labeling it as such, that's where I think my, my creative and my playful education really, really took off. It had started a bit in, in the arts institution I worked in before I went there, which was sort of multidisciplinary. Well, I've been with Jenny and I love that. Well, it saddened me to hear, you know, that loss of, and, and the hiding of those things mm. that really lit you up as a child. And I can certainly relate to that myself. And I, I'm sure a lot of people can, that kind of yeah. pushing aside of the things that we love and the things that bring us joy. And 
um, really spark our curiosity. And I love the fact that you have rediscovered that because I, I don't think everybody does do that. Um, and I think, wow, what a gift and how you've, innate, you've brought it to others. We're prisoners of conditioning. We're prisoners of conditioning. I think we are also very convinced. You know, people, people, by and large, people who work in academic in, in academia are either deeply in love with their subject or deeply committed to, you know, developing learning in others or a whole heap of other things. You know, there is, there is, there is a commitment there. And we have it absolutely impressed upon ourselves about the weight of our responsibility, about being conscientious, about having integrity, about doing the right thing by our students. But and a whole heap of other stuff gets caught up in that. And we end up, if we're not careful, in believing that there are only certain ways to be, you know, honorable, committed uh, educators with integrity who, who do right by their subject and by their students, not necessarily in that order. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the, the big challenges that we, that we face is that we've become prisoners of beliefs and drivers and values that have crept into our, our formal education in whatever, in whatever sort of sector. And I think we need to be, we need to have our eyes wide open to the dangers that that can bring. Now, of course, you can't be naive, you know, institutions have to work in a certain way. A lot of them aren't, you know, we're supposed to have sort of some form of autonomy, but we, you know, we dance to governmental tunes, departmental tunes, leadership tunes, whatever, whatever. So there's, there's always internal and external constraints in what we do. But nonetheless, yeah. is, there is room for just asking why we, why we have to do those things. And we say to ourselves in academia, we say, oh yeah, but that's the great thing about universities. We do that. Yeah, well, we do and we don't actually. You know, um, we, you know we do a lot of game playing as well and, and kind of agenda agenda dancing. Um, anyway. Agenda <laughs> dancing, nice. Yeah, I mean, is it fair to say that kind of academia and education is dominated by the kind of rational, the logical the linear and what play brings in is something that disrupts that? That's a really interesting question. I think it will depend on your subject. Um, yeah. so, and I think absolutely right that certain certain disciplines, and obviously I'm not an expert in all of them, so so I, I, I wouldn't be able to say anything definitive. But certainly what I found in the play studies that I've done is that you come across people who will say engineering, case in point. I worked in Turin in uh, 2020, just before the pandemic kicked off, and worked with a number of people from engineering who, and their view of engineering was, and this is not because they were Italian engineers, this is just they were, they were themselves, you know, everybody's unique, we're not all, we're not all clones. But their, their, their view about engineering was, it's not about creativity, it's about precision. You know, it's about precision, it's mm. about measurement. And, and to be a good engineer, these are absolutely fundamental to what I do. Therefore, for one or two people in the room, there was, they, they, they couldn't quite see why you would need creativity and playfulness necessarily. Um, I then worked with other engineers a few months later who said, but it's all about creativity. It's all about interpreting. It's all about this and the other. In how they approach engineering, in their area of engineering. So you can't be, 
you can't be sort of cut and dried about things. And we make these kind of binaries. We do it with play and work. We do it with arts and sciences. We do it with all sorts of things where we say it's this or it's that. And another colleague who contributed to the study um, talked about the work that she's done in trying to bring arts and medical sciences together so that both realize that there is a place, you know, the, the, the strengths and the skills and the practices of each have a place with the other. And I think that's really, that's a really important thing for us to realize. And I think there has been, there has been a lot of that over the, over the last 20, 30 years, you know, with, with a shift towards more inclusive teaching and learning, more creative teaching and learning, we have got an awful lot better. We still find that there are islands of practice where people think it has to be the lecture and seminar. The only way to assess is the essay and the exam. And, you know, I often quote a, an academic from a number of years ago who said to me, and, and, and that person was, was very interested in what I did. They even invited me to speak to one of their network meetings at their university, which was fantastic. So they were open, but their, their question to me was, my job is to educate, you know, it's not to entertain. And, and I was just surprised that the question had even formulated itself because to me, those are not, those are not binary opposites. You can do both. Right. I think one of the, one of the disservices that we did many years ago was to invent a sneery word, which was edutainment. And edutainment instantly sort of was used to be derogatory about practices that sounded like they were, you know, dumbing down education, um, that they were um, sort of taking liberties with the integrity of the subject because they were sort of trying to make it accessible to people who clearly didn't have the academic wherewithal to, to cope with difficult, which is nonsense. But actually, I've always thought that edutainment, like retirement and play, is another term that needs reclaiming because, because it just yeah. says you can have both. You can have serious, <laughs> and complex and difficult and conceptual. And you can have fun or whatever entertainment means to you. And let's not even go down the rabbit hole of fun. You know, other people who are infinitely yeah. more qualified than me have been trying to work out what fun is. I think that is, going back to your question, I think that the, the belief in the rational, the logical and the linear is camped in the way. But then again, you know, it, it brings us onto that really difficult territory about how do we define play? You know, what is play? Does it have these features or that features? And depending on what discipline you inhabit, play is likely to, ha to have more or fewer of different characteristics. And some of those characteristics don't even fit terribly comfortably in a formal higher education setting or in a workplace setting. But yeah. for me, nevertheless, there's still play. You know, play purists might yeah. say, oh, it's entirely voluntary, otherwise it's not play, or it has to be purposeless, or it's not play. But actually, letting off steam is a purpose. You know, wanting to throw a ball in the air to see how high it goes is a purpose. It's just not a kind of predetermined complex goal. Without wanting to open a can of worms that I realise I might be asking a play researcher what play means to you in the context of work. I am going to ask you that question. Like from, um, you know, from all of the research that you've done and your own experience as a playful educator, um, what does it mean to you in relation to education and your work? 
if somebody says to me, yes, but what's play, what's playful learning or what's play-based learning, then I would say that that kind of learning is anything that involves any kind of play or games or a playful approach to learning, which is, which, which sounds terribly straightforward and neat. Hurrah. But of course, the problem is, is play means so many different things to different people. And if you look at play theorists, if I look at Brian Sutton Smith, who, whose work I find hugely impressive, you know, he creates this typology of play types, but he has all sorts of things in there drawn from different disciplines, including things like hostessing, whatever that is, um, babysitting, you know, blah, 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 things that I don't think of as remotely play-based or playful. Um, and so we start finding that there are quite kind of edgy boundaries around what constitutes play um, of all those kinds. So I suppose what I do is I try and move all the kind, well, most of the societal forms of play, if you like, to, to, to the edge. Because when I think about play uh, in formal educational settings, I'm not talking about extracurricular play, play in the playground, whatever, whatever. I'm thinking about play uh, in the curriculum, play for, in the classroom, play for staff and educational yeah. development whatever so that's that's my that's my parameter and if you if you take out the words higher education and you put in work then I would say that it is about play to enable you and others to do your jobs or that it is part it is part of the context in which you do your jobs yeah you have a much more grown-up um or sophisticated uh, way of describing it but but that that if that that is sort of at, at a, that's what I'm that's what I mean. A, a little sort of qualifier in there, you know, lots of people and academics, we are, we are so-and-sos for this. We do love a little bit of kind of, you know, navel gazing. And so, you know, one of the things you learn as a, a new academic is it, it really, it's all about problematizing. This is when you know you've joined the big, <laughs> the big people. You problematize. It's, it's the that, that word slightly makes me, it slightly makes me shudder, that word. <laughs> yes. It, 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 you know, and, and 30, 30 something years ago as a new academic, um, I, I, first of all, I was baffled by it. Then I thought, oh, I'd better learn how to do it. And then, you know, at the other end of the scale, you just think, yeah, yeah, but no, but, you know, yes, problematizing up to a certain extent, but then we can go down, we can get ourselves in terrible, terrible knots. And so I think problematizers want to know, yeah, but what's the difference between play and creativity? What's the difference between experiential learning and this, that, and the other? And actually, heart, you know, it's all very interesting if you want to get into the theoretical minutiae, which is more or less unsolvable because nobody can agree. But, you know, there, there are just simply, at the end of the day, there will, there will be crossover points. Play might be creative, it might not be creative. You know, creativity isn't always playful. Uh, experiential learning might have a bit of play and creativity in it. But then again, it might not. So, I mean, it's just, if you just kind of go, it depends. Yes, they can all be a little bit of the other, but they all have distinct features. Leave it alone. I think that's really interesting. And I think you did an amazing job of keeping that very understandable. <laughs> and that seems to me to be a very intuitive way of thinking about it. And um, for me, it's a, I guess it's about bringing an attitude of playfulness to the work at hand and creating space for others to do the same and not taking work at face value. How do you shake it about a bit? And Absolutely. You know, absolutely. 
It's that lovely Pat Kane quote that he takes from Friedrich von Schiller about play uh, being taking reality lightly. And I think that's, yes. that's important because it doesn't mean that you're dismissing reality or what you're dealing with as trivial, but it means that you're approaching it in a different way. And of course, what you're describing, I think, is that difference between play and playfulness because play actually can, can be a very unplayful experience. You know, sometimes yeah. people look at the word play and think, oh, it must be horsing around and lots of jollity and th those sorts of things. But it can be so many other things and it can be quiet and it can be thoughtful. It, it can be slow. Um, and, it, you know, to me, it, it has so many. It's like a kaleidoscope. It's got so many different facets. I think that's really, really important because I think, as you said at the beginning, there is a bit of squeamishness around the concept of play in relation to work. And I think the, I think the breadth of what it can mean is much more inviting when you, when you think about it in a very wide context. Like it can be solo. As you said, it can be quiet. It doesn't have to be what I think it gets stereotyped as, as this kind of boisterous, bantery, you know, competitive games type of play. There's a great variety. Um, and I think that feels much more inclusive to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's often it that that's why it's it's often really nice to if you can, in not too heavy handed a way, not like, you know, trying to explain a joke before you've got to the punchline. But if you can kind of unpack some of the assumptions, because I do think that's one of the greatest Th those kinds of prejudices or barriers or 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 maybe narrow interpretations of what play is 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 what stops people well it, it makes people more hung up about play than they need to be um mm. but it also means that people are as you say squeamish or suspicious and it does mean that if you are working in a very market-driven productivity-oriented um setting then you know play sounds like a waste of time and money and certainly in something like all educational setting where you've got people paying for their education or they've got grants, but they've got loans or they've got whatever, um, you know, the idea of playing your way to your degree or your qualification or whatever just sounds like a complete nonsense. But it's because people have, um, yeah, th th they don't fully understand what, what play is. And it's interesting because we have been on a similar journey with lots of things that are now, um, that I, I think had, had the same sort of barriers and things that had now ha have been completely reappraised re and it can happen with, uh, with play as well. If I think of what used to be called a specific learning dif difficulties, and now we're talking about, you know, neuro neurodiversity, but back in the, the 60s and 70s, Dyslexia was was seen as people who couldn't read or spell, you know, people who who weren't academically bright. And what we've done over the last forty years is, you know, those kinds of complete misjudgments about mm. what that particular learning difference is all about have been completely upended. You know, people understand about diverse ways of processing information. People understand about so many different things and the stigma has gone and and that's mm. that's exceptionally important when you consider the incredible strengths and and 
and gifts and talents that, um, uh, that that having dyslexia can bring. That's just an example, but I've seen it. I've I've seen it in in my in my work working with learning support services and and um, uh, working with colleagues who were uh, working with students with a whole range of learning differences. If you're even allowed to call them learning differences anymore, you know the the, the language moves on very quickly. But so you know, there's a case in point. If you think about uh, some of the in 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 wider society, some of the sort of the things that we were okay, we thought were okay to uh, label, to joke about, to talk about, you know, the the things that we assumed were norms forty years ago in lots of different ways. You know, we we reappraise that. I'm not suggesting that you know play and neurodiversity are necessarily on the same uh, on, on the same platform but I think it, it's perfectly possible for us to take something that we think is a problem and actually reappraise it to realize that judiciously viewed so not uncritically viewed um that actually we've got hang-ups we don't need to have because because there are really good reasons for having play but not play at any price yeah so it feels like we've got quite a lot of revolutions on our hands so we're trying to revolutionize the word play edutainment retirement um and speaking to you and reading your papers and it feels like there's a bit of a revolution going on in higher education at the moment um with kind of play clubs and play conferences popping Mm. up all over the place in the world of higher education Is, is that fair to say is that your is that your experience I would love it to be a revolution. And it's funny because I, I don't really think of myself as a revolutionary. I think of myself as somebody who likes to stir the pot occasionally. But I, but I think you're, no, I think you're right. But, but again, it's like, you know, it's a bit like when, when somebody becomes an overnight sensation, say in music or in film, they're not an overnight sensation. They've been pegging away for Lord knows how long, most of them. Um, and suddenly, bosh, there they are, they're, they're you know, A-listers or whatever. And it, 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 again, slightly dodgy analogy for play, but I think, you know, there are a lot of very highly respected people in, in play, play networks who have been around for a long time. You know, they've been using play and playful learning for 15, 20 years, if not longer. And some of the associations, something like the Playful Learning Association in the UK has been around for, I don't know, 12, 15 years. And it started off as a special interest group. So for games and I think learning technology, and that's that's become much more uh, broad ranging over the years, and it's got an international, it's got international involvement, and then you've got newer ones like um, the Playful University platform, which is hosted in Denmark, but again international board that's been around for a few years. The professors at Play in the states that um, launched itself two years ago has got something like eight hundred members. So you've got you've got new players and you've got old players. But what I would say is certainly in the last five years, maybe three to five years, I have seen suddenly the word play pops up. You see it in more contexts. You you see people talking about we've still got a bit of a way to go. You know, I was very fortunate in one of the universities I worked in, whereas there was some kind of espousal of the word play. Um, but there was still re- resistance among some of the, the, you know, the old guard who who really weren't quite sure that they wanted to see any reference to play in things like educational policy or whatever. Um, you know, I, I do think we've made a lot of 
a lot of inroads. I think what has also happened now in the work that I'm aware of, people are saying, so we've got more and more publications around playful practices, playful education, playful work. You know, I've come across a number of studies which have been fascinating around play in the workplace. So all of that's going on. What perhaps we need more of is research studies, perhaps uh, something that's going to enable us to have that critical mass, but also have some some kind of uh, supporting research arm. Now, even if, it's like, do you know what? Even as I say that out loud, I'm not even convinced if that is what we need. But I think it's what higher education <laughs> thinks we need because then it, you know, um, it can it can breathe out and go. Phew, there's the research to support it. It must be okay. I think we are still still in in an education world, in a work based world, where everybody is relieved if you can say so and so has been doing it twenty years. There's this book on it. There's that research study. This major company is using it. It's one of the reasons people love Lego Serious Play. You know, you can say Formula One have used it, Red Cross have used it, X number of universities are using it, all these big companies are using it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and so people are relieved. You know, it's like it's mm. like taking a supplement that, that you know has been supported by science as opposed to something that your Auntie Dora says <laughs> works, even though Auntie Dora was ahead of her time. So, um, uh I, yes, to, to go back to your, your question, definitely, there is a shift. There is a shift in the zeitgeist, but I think we are still up against a lot, a lot of concerns that come from a legitimate base, if you like. You know, we, we, we owe our students, as I've said already, we owe our students an excellent learning experience. We need to be responsible with the money they're investing in us. We need to make sure we can do our best to unleash their potential so that they can go on and do this, that, and the other. And those are very serious and weighty concerns. And higher education for years and years now is, has not, it's not, it's not resting on its laurels. It's not a relaxed place. It's had all sorts of issues with funding, with, with the withdrawal of, of, you know, government support, uh, dancing to various educational tunes, far greater, um, uh, dare I say, interference from external agencies to, and can influence the kinds of decision making that that universities have to make. So, I mean, and and it's a bit, you know, I'm I'm sorry to say it, and I don't know, maybe your listeners wouldn't agree with me, but I do think that there is still an awful lot of educator bashing goes on. You know, when I was growing up, there was that silly old adage about those that can do and those that can't teach. What other, you know, yeah. utter utter drivel. Um, but certainly, if you look at a lot of the British media and pronouncements made by uh, successive UK governments in the last 20 years, you know, they love trumpeting the value of the, the um, you know, the UK research university and, and our world leading education while putting the boot in to those who are actually delivering that education on the ground. You know, there's still some kind of mis. Misconception that that some of us are still up in ivory towers, which is complete. Again, it's absolute nonsense. Um, so I think we are yeah. up against we are up against what I would say are resistances and suspicions, which are born of that lack of understanding of yeah. what it means, what what it can do, what playfulness can yes. do. Yes, and actually, how it can be a fundamental piece of delivering an. An excellent education and 
unlocking that potential of human beings. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I often, I often share the story sort of many years ago, I, I worked, um, with a wonderful colleague who was one of the first to say, I want, I want you to design a, a Lego based module for my students. And it was, I was, I spent a, a number of years absolutely fascinated, um, by the whole notion of personal development and planning, as it was called at the time, professional development, you know, the kind of soft skills, the whole person development so that you understood, you know, who you were, where you were going, what you wanted to get out of your education over and above or in, in tandem with your, you know, your, your subject studies. So, you know, the whole critical reflection agenda, rah, rah. Um, but I wasn't really a fan of, the, and now sit down and write a 500 word reflection on what you've learned, because I knew that, you know, a lot of students just, you know, well, they were remarkably expedient. You know, they'd knock something out on the bus. They'd, they'd give us some old guff that they knew that wouldn't see that, you know, how they'd, they were going to do things differently as a result of doing X, Y, Z. And, you know, and some of them quite upfront about the fact that they thought it was utterly pointless. And so I was at pains to bring playful and creative and self-reflective approaches together to make it more meaningful. And so as a part of that, on this particular course, I was invited to run a personal development planning uh, module, um, and I made it entirely Lego based. So I was inspired by techniques from Lego series play. And I created this three hour workshop where, um, students at the end of their year course built Lego based models of their learning journey from that year, you know, what, and they were all international students. They'd all come from abroad. It was a year long course prior to embarking on the degree. They all had these they created these extraordinary models of what it felt like to arrive in the UK, you know, their expectations, how it unfolded, things, this and the other, blah, blah, blah. And um, at the end of the, the sessions, you know, they would listen, to, they would have listened to, they'd obviously express their own learning journeys. They'd listen to the stories of the learning journeys of others. And, and I took one of the gifting techniques and said, okay, you know, everybody took an, a, a name out of a hat um, and it was, you know, it's secret and they built they built a gift for one of the people in the room. They were maximum groups of 12. One of the people in the room, something that they, you know, they noticed about the story they told about their learning journey that, and they built for them something that they thought they might, you know, need or benefit from. And, wow. and it was extraordinary how the, the, the building and the sharing of the models of these learning journeys was incredibly insightful. It was infinitely more meaningful than sitting, sitting, you know, lonely on the number 37 bus, boshing out your 500 words. The building of the gifts was an extraordinary experience. Bearing in mind that, you know, th these weren't necessarily students who were already good friends. They'd come from different courses and all the rest of it. And at the end of that, we had, we had this big inflatable, I call, it was a pod, big inflatable white pod in the studio where we'd been doing the Lego. And it had, um, a laptop with a little video uh, recorder on it and they were able, the students went in and they, and, and there were some prompts stuck on the sides of the pods and the students went in and they were able to respond to these reflections and say, you know, basically how they felt about the experience they just had. And then, yeah. and then they, they were able to take their recording away, their little video away. And then they did write some kind of critical review of their year, but their teachers were blown away by how the quality of the writing and the reflection had changed in that kind of, you know, doing it literally in sort of physical multi-sensory capacity, then reflect yeah. audio visually and then writing something. Um, 
very, very long-winded way of sort of sharing an example, but also at the end of one of these sessions, a girl who'd literally just built all the way through three, 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 hours, three hours, she was absolutely devoted, if you like. Um, and she asked if she could help me tidy where the Lego. Always happy for a bit of help. So I said, yes. And um, we were chatting away and, and she said, uh, do you know I have ADHD and uh, uh, attention deficit disorder? And I said, no, because you've, your focus has been phenomenal this morning. You've spent three hours totally on task, immersed in what you're doing. And she said, she said a wonderful thing. She said, if you'd have done a PowerPoint and a seminar, I'd have been out the door in 10 minutes. But she said, when my fingers are moving, I'm golden. And I just thought that oh. was the most beautiful. It always, it always makes me kind of get a bit unnecessary when I tell that story because you just think, there you go. There you go. What else yeah. do you need? This yeah. girl, so I've got transformed. Yeah, I've got goosebumps you telling me that because I think going back to your point about, um, you know, diversity, I feel, and, and reading your study, it feels like actually creating playful ways for people to learn or for people to work gives access to such a wider group of people and people with different ways of experiencing the world and learning and taking in information and expressing themselves and you create this this cauldron that is so much richer than yeah. if you simply do a powerpoint and deliver it in this very kind of rational cognitive way that works for you know such a small group of people yeah yeah and i think also it's it's a very good example i think people people on the outside look at playful experiences and they just think, oh, that's brilliant. That'll be a really quick way of me doing X, you know, just bunch, bunch, of, bunch of people together, get them to do X, Y, Z, and, and it'll all work by itself. And of course, again, you and I, and I'm sure your listeners know as well, is actually for really, um, what's the word? Uh, I, was, I, was, I was going to say effective. Ew, no, not if effective playful learning but I wanted to say sa I wanted to say sacred what you described just sounded sacred to me well, no, like, but people talk about sacred you know the sacredness of the place based don't they so I think you know that's an entirely legitimate term but I think maybe I'm not quite sure I think there are lots of words I wouldn't say but I maybe maybe I'm going to be pathetic and sort of go for a good play experience we, which we all know it's a bit like <laughs> nice it's, it's everything and nothing but a play to be something that is going to be entertaining, inclusive, insightful, comfortable, relaxing, whatever it is that you want it to be. You don't just, you don't just pull it out of your pocket, unless of course you are quite experienced and you know that you've got something that will work in a certain situation. You have to think about it. You have to think about, you know, why do I want to do this? Why do I think this is a good idea? Who am I doing it with? What what kind of enthusiasms and reticences might they bring? What is it that I don't know about the people I'm thinking about doing this with? Because I think one of the things, one of the things I talk about my study, and I'm afraid this is where I did, did um, sell my soul to the academic devil, and I came up with a good old polysyllable term, uh, you know, polarities of play. Uh, but I, and, and I tried not to use it, but actually I kept coming back to it being really the best term I could think of. And it is that one thing can have very extreme views around it. So if we take this notion of diversity and inclusion, you know, 
I would get a bunch of people in the study going, play's absolutely brilliant. It's so inclusive. It, it's a leveler. It does this, that, and the other. And then you get other people who say, got to be careful because some play experiences will simply reinforce any kind of inequalities or divides or whatever there are. So some gamers, for example, would talk about, you know, the cultural capital that comes with certain forms of play and games. And if you haven't got that, if you don't know the in-jokes, if you don't know how something works, then already, you know, you're, you're on the outside. Competitive play, same thing, you know, a bunch of people would say, competitive play is fantastic for my students. It's so incentivizing. It motivates them. They love winning. They love the rewards. They love this, that, and the other. And another bunch of people say, it brings out the worst in my students. The last thing I need is for them to be pitting themselves against each other. Blah, blah, blah. I like collaborative, cooperative play where you all have to work together to win, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yes, I think it's, that, that's, again, it's another ramble, but I think it's about saying that, yes, play does have the possibility of, of opening up learning to people who maybe, who, who weren't getting on well or, or for whom traditional ways of doing these, traditional ways of teaching and supporting weren't having the breakthroughs or weren't enabling them to have the breakthroughs that they, they needed. And actually, you know, that they were perfectly capable of doing. There's a wonderful story in, in, in my study um, that somebody from... Uh, medical sciences sh shared and uh, that, that's a very broad brush term but she talks about micro pipetting a la die hard and she's she said you know micro pipetting yes i is, read that one we, and it's an absolutely lovely one um it's worth reading study just for that one and of course the great thing is with pdfs you can just search for micro pipetting and you'll go straight to the story um but she said you know they, that, that micro pipetting is one of these incredibly precise techniques but loads of people don't get it and, and she was wondering, you know, how could she teach this, this, the, the kind of the delicacies of technique? Because it wasn't just a question of, you know, you have liquid in, in one container and liquid in another and you squirt a bit of that into that and Bob's your uncle. You know, precision is absolutely a key. And so she, she found the, the water jug riddle from Die Hard. I'm not going to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen the film. Is there anybody who hasn't seen the film? Um, and, and so she took the analogy of that. And at the end of the workshop, she had two perfectly capable, bright medical students come up to her and just say, you've literally saved our medical careers because they said, you know, we were struggling with this. We just couldn't grasp it. And we were ready to walk away. You know, they'd lost their confidence. They'd lost their belief that they, you know, that they had the, the academic intelligence to do things. And it was just about finding that different technique. Um, and yeah. I think that's, you know, wow. that's one in a, in a myriad, you know, reasons as to why, why play is legitimate, you know? Yeah. Yes. I love that. So, I mean, we touched on the introduction, but you have written a number of books about mm. play. So you wrote Higher Education, Engaging Imagination with Professor Stephen Brookfield. You wrote The Power of Play in Higher Education with Chrissy Naranci. And then most recently, as we've been alluding to you wrote a study which was funded by the imagination lab how dreamy um called the study of play in higher education sorry the, the value of play in higher education and i mean again i'm going to ask you another slightly impossible question but from you know, all this deep work that you've done and also your own practice which i know is very playful you've given us 
a, a lovely example here. And I know you've got hundreds of others from the chats we've had before. But what would you, what do you think is most valuable about playful approaches to learning and bringing, inviting play in? Like, why should we do this? That's really interesting because you'd if you were if you were asking me and 19 other people you'd get 20 different answers <laughs> um, that's why i think if anybody's got an interest even if they're not very familiar with what it's all about leafing through any of of, of my books and papers or or the study or, or whatever or anything about playful learning by other people as well is 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 really good because of course we all have our subjective preferences what do i like it i think what i like about it is connection. It's, it's pure and simple. And it's connection through play or through creative and playful means. It's enabling people to connect to the subject. You know, maybe they didn't want to, maybe they didn't think they were interested. Wonderful stories in my, my study, but in other studies as well, where um, they, they look at student feedback forms and the students, having had a playful experience, will say things like, this was the class I really didn't want to go to. This was the class I thought that was going to be pointless. This was the class I nearly skipped. And I'm so glad I didn't. So I think, yeah. you know, people come along and, and then, you know, we, all, we approach things with preconceptions, don't we? You know, oh, I don't want to watch that. It'll be a bit boring. Oh, I don't want to go to that. It's a bit late. Oh, I'm not sure if that's going to be any good. That's not my cup of tea. But so we kind of talk ourselves out of loads of things. But I think what play does is if you can get people in a room, nine times out of 10, I find that even those who are not sure they want to be there, 98% of them will have their minds changed fairly quickly when they realize there is something that intrigues them or piques their curiosity or kind of gets close to something that they felt was cut and dried. Um, and, you know, sometimes you seem set to be able to, so, so that people have kind of got, you know, a few sort of reasons to why this is proper, you know, why this is okay. Or you just say, you know, archetypal line from the movies, movies do you trust me? And you, you try something and then afterwards you debrief and you unpack and you say, okay, you know, what was going on in your mind? What did you find from that? What did you notice? Blah, blah, blah. So those sorts of debrief. And I think debrief with play can be really helpful a lot of, a lot of times. Uh, you don't want to kill it stone dead. Obviously you want to leave some magic in the same way as you don't ask people to explain how they did a trick in my view. Anyway, um, so connection, connection to me, you know, Somebody suddenly is interested in the subject. The subject is speaking to them. It's making sense. They can see how it has relevance. These are all or some of these relevance for other things. They can, they can start going on their own kinds of journeys and stuff. I think connection to self and others. I think one, one of noticed time and again is how play engenders conversations with people. Um, years ago, I and a number of colleagues co-convened a play and creativity festival at the University of Winchester, and it ran for three years, uh, well, annually for three years. And first year we ran it, um, somebody, basically, we, we, we just set up, set up a lot of cr creative and playful activities. In the first year, it was just literally, we kind of experimented with spaces on campus. 
for the final two years, we did it in a big play tent on, on one of the sports fields. Um, so there was a kind of, you know, special place going back to your sacred space. That to me was my sacred space, that tent. Oh, lovely. Um, which was lovely. Um, but uh, but um, somebody uh, from a non-educational department wrote in a, in a feedback form, I've had, I've had conversations with people I never speak to about things I would never normally talk about. And I just thought yeah. that was mind-blowing because it is about yeah. how to play. And if you don't, this is where I think play is so important, play and creativity, whichever one you prefer, is that it's not like you say, okay, you know, by, by 11.30, I will have had a meaningful conversation with Brenda about climate change or whatever it is. You know, it's just, I'm allowing myself to go into that space and I'm going to try X and things will unfold. And, you know, we have lost in many respects, I think, in higher education, the value of the unexpected learning outcome. We're so busy measuring whether or not people have met these learning objectives that we forget about all the ones that really, really matter and actually maybe matter even more, you know, than the ones that we're supposed to have got out of a module. Um, and so I think, I think it's, it's those things that play can unlock that can be both to do with the educational, the work-based experience, but also all the things that maybe are completely private and personal to that individual, maybe they don't even share them, but they they have yeah. had something <clears throat> out of that experience. And so I think, yes, fundamentally play for connection. And that doesn't necessarily mean getting all group huggy with everybody. Although, you know, hey, I'm all up for group hug. But it's 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 just about, you know, yeah, opening eyes, making connections, tapping into something meaningful. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, which all sounds incidentally very touchy-feely, but to me, that word connection, there's nothing wrong with touchy-feely either, but there's that connection, it's, it's, it, it, it encompasses everything. It encompasses your rational, logical linear that you were talking about. It encompasses yeah. the emotional and the human. Uh, it's, it's, it's subject-based, it's people-based, it's what is my place in this world-based. You know, it's for big questions, little questions. I think that's what's so mm. great. Yeah. And I think that connection, I mean, it kind of comes back to, you know, the journey described at the beginning, you know, mm. that reconnection to that very early part of ourselves, which sometimes we lose. And yeah. it's very important to remember. I love that quote by Bernard de Coven, which I quote way too often. When we're guided by our playfulness, it will lead us back to life itself. And I think oh, that that's... is, you know... I love that. If you can give people that gift, I think it's such a, an amazing thing and a generous thing. Yeah. Um, I'd love it if we could finish by, um, we ask all our, our guests to share a playful practice that our listeners can go and have a go with when they go back to their place of work. So I wondered if you had something um, that you've been playing with that you might be able to impart to us? Oh, gosh. Putting you on the spot here. <laughs> there, are, there are so many. I think this is going to sound like a bit of a cop-out answer, Lucy. I think, I think if, if anybody feels that... I think I think your own playfulness 
We all know whether or not playfulness is working. It's like if you tell a joke and it falls flat, you know, you know that it didn't didn't work, you know. But I think we get a sense of of where our playfulness resides. And I think so I think owning your own playfulness and thinking about um how you might how you might try. I think if you are going to pick a playful practice, again, this is going to sound like a bit of a, a, a sort of a, a, a non-answer to your question, but I think it's it's about first asking yourself is you know why do I want to do this, what do I want to achieve or not achieve? What's 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 the the driver behind the play? Is it because we're stuck? Is it because there's a gap? Or is is it mm. something else? And you don't ever overthink these things. Sometimes actually, it's a very simple thing. Like you know, I want us to connect, or I want us to breathe, or I want us to uh, expand our ideas, or whatever it is. There are so many playful practices that I've used. That you know, I would. Oh God, I, I don't know where to start, but I tell you what I will do is I will suggest one lot on Lego based. So Chrissy Narancy and I have just reissued, um, and it's open source and it's freely available online. Um, I can always send you the link um, if that's helpful. Yeah, we can um, put it in the show notes. That would be great. We call it something like Lego for Learning Online, Offline, and Elsewhere. And it's it's a it's a second edition of a booklet that we brought out in 2019, which is about all the different ways that you can use Lego series play and Lego based activities in in a right. higher education situation. And we have our offerings, but we also have, I think we had 16 contributors in the first edition, got 24 in the second edition. And they offer a whole range of ways in which you can use Lego in different studies. And I think I think though that's that's one that's one suggestion of a playful practice yeah mm. uh, that, that that i would i would share because i use lego all the time so so i guess lego yes. based things is absolutely so i've got one other though which is a sort of a back oh, in the please, middle. yeah and also you know i i can't remember where i got inspired to use this um but it is it's it's an exercise i used to use in um oh God, workshops years and years ago called What's on Your T-shirt. And I used to get, um, I used to bring in cardboard cutout T-shirts, not life-size, but little T-shirts. Um, and I used them in teacher training. I used it in reflective practice. I used it in all sorts of workshops. Um, and I would ask participants to write on, on their T-shirt, you know, what was it they most wanted uh, either their colleagues or their students to know about them? in any given context. So it could be at the start of a module, it could be in this room right now, it could be, I don't know what. And, um, you know, they had, they had pens and things. And so they, they, they could decorate the t-shirt, they could write a slogan, they could have an, an image, they could do whatever they wanted. And that was wonderful for getting us away, you know, a bit like the way, if you do a play-based activity or you work with Lego or you work with creative things and you invite people to introduce themselves, what they say through those means compared to if you just all whip table a la committee style, if you go around the table or use the flip chart, you get the CV approach. My name's Brenda. I, you know, I've worked for 25 years in accounting. Um, and... But if you do it through playful and creative means, you get a totally different story. And 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 so people would write all sorts of things on their t-shirts, which which were then wonderful 
points of conversation. So if you had it with trainee, trainee teachers or people new to education or whatever it was, you know, seeing what they thought their role as a teacher was, for example. But my favorite one was I did an away day with a, a network for um, um, librarians and we had about 55 librarians in, in a lovely castle uh, somewhere back in the days when you could go to such lovely places. And, and I did the, the t-shirt activity. So I was used to handing out the t-shirts. Everybody would write something. Everybody would write something different. And then there would be a big conversation about, you know, what, what the slogan on the t-shirt meant. Uh, macho hilarity. And what was so touching with the librarians was it's the only time that there was an incredible homogeneity in the messages. And so they all said wow. things like, I can help, here to help. Do you need help? What help would you like? And it's just <laughs> of all, and it was just, it was just a really lovely moment that 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 there was this sort of synergy in the room, and and they they all thought it was hilarious. Wow. They'd all come out with these remarkably similar messages about That's about amazing. this like community of people wanting to be in service. Yeah, yeah, it was lovely, and you you know you'd get students. And you can, there's so many ways you can riff on a, on a thing like that. So if you like, that's a mixture. It's the simple, it's the creative, it's the playful. It can take as long or as short as, as you want it to. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, I, yeah, and I will put the link to the Lego um, booklets that you mentioned in the show notes for the episode. And I know those are designed for higher education, but I feel like there's a lot of um, transferable learning in so much of what you've shared to other sectors and other industries. Um, yeah, could, could so I, thank you, Alison. Yeah. I just literally say on that basis, because I think that's an incredibly important point to end on is, yes, you know, and I've made this point when I've talked to lots of different constituents since the study came out, you could quite easily take away, you know, the study, for example, says the value of play in HE. You can easily take away HE and you can put in the workplace, in education, at home, in your local community, whatever, whatever, you, in your family. You can take away that thing because the kinds of transferable things that come through are the emotional experiences you have through play, the insights about whatever yeah. it is you're doing through play. And there are so many sort of universal things that irrespective of where we are and what we are doing, we're doing all the time as a human, like reflecting on stuff, uh, formulating questions, making decisions, uh, dealing with incomplete yeah. information, um, blah, blah, blah. So there are so many things, expressing ourselves, communicating, connecting, so many things that far transcend the higher education uh, category and they, trans they transcend disciplines as well, you know, so. Yes, yes. Um, fantastic. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, um, but I, we will end it there today. And I'd just like to express my thanks and gratitude for such a rich conversation and yeah, such beautiful stories. Thank oh, you. Thank you, Lucy. And thank you for the great questions and thanks for the opportunity. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. So, Lucy, what were your reflections on your lovely conversation with Alison? Oh, that I could have carried on for hours and hours. I feel like she's got so much playful wisdom to impart. Mm. Um, but I really love the language that she uses. So things like free range instead of retired and 
reclaiming things like the word edutainment. Like, mm. how can we make that a positive thing? Yes, we want to entertain the people that we're educating. I thought that was really nice. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I found it so refreshing to hear her say that she's never felt more creative and energized than at this point in her life, as she is in the stage that, you know, we would deem retirement. That's when she's really feeling that creative energy flow. So I thought, fantastic. I'm looking forward to that that yeah. stage as well. So that was really yeah. refreshing. Me too. And and yeah, exactly. That the reclaiming of language, thought she was so spot on when she was talking about the kind of inbuilt hierarchies and sort of blinkered perceptions that we can hold on education, where we study, what we study, how, how we build a body of work exactly around that kind of slightly sneery word of edutainment, which is actually Mm. can be a brilliant, valuable thing to offer someone if it can be (laughs) enjoyable and entertaining as well as imparting something of value. Um, And yeah, just a a phrase jumped out at me when she was reflecting on that around being prisoners of our own beliefs, um, which I think was just a lovely phrase to take away as kind of really make sure we're kind of examining our own beliefs and whether they're serving us or are they holding us prisoner. Yeah, that was really rich. And that sense of there being a dominance of certain ways of knowing and Mm. understanding the world and learning over others. And that, you know, the cognitive and the rational is primary. And actually, we lose so much when we don't allow space for other ways of learning and knowing. Mm, Absolutely. What else came up for you? I love this idea of play being about taking reality lightly. And at the same time, not trivializing it, but just holding it loosely and not taking it so seriously. Mm, mm. I thought that was really interesting. Keeping it really intuitive. She was just super generous and inviting and inclusive in how she was thinking about play and playing and playfulness. I completely agree. Yes. And on that point about inclusiveness, there was that beautiful example of where she got the group to do their reflective practice through Lego. And that girl said, when my fingers are moving, I'm golden. And I just thought, yeah, that is so powerful. How you, she felt completely included and engaged in that exercise because it wasn't done just through the written word or just through cognitive reflection. Yeah, I love that moment as well. I also really enjoyed listening to Alison's reflections on how it feels like this kind of field of play and being more embracing of play it's kind of gaining momentum um, as an idea and, and I kind of agree with what she was saying around there's still a sense that it kind of needs you know research underpinning it and because mm. that gives the permission to engage in this it validates this desire to engage in play and it kind of legitimizes it and I was noodling on that and thinking that you know there's fantastic research out there that already exists and you know yes let's have more we can only we can only add to this body of work but I really liked her kind of slight provocation that more research isn't what is required for wider playfulness in our work to kind of gain traction. I think if we say, you know, yes, we would want more research, but it's not it's not required to give us permission. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really it's the kind of practical experimentation in real life workplaces that I think would be so additive to this. You know, small pockets of just trying new ways of working, new ways of connecting with colleagues, ideating in workshops, warming up before meetings, solving problems. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a wholesale revolution, but just these small pockets of kind of experiment. I think that's when it feels really impactful because we kind of take it off the page and we really 
we really try it in real life. And as adults, we kind of open ourselves up to the possibilities of what might happen when we let that little bit of play into our lives and into our work and into our relationships. Um, so I, I loved her, yeah, sense of, yes, let's have more research, but also let's, let's let the rubber hit the road on this. We don't need to wait for that to give us this kind of legitimized permission. Yes, exactly. And, and kind of linked to that, the, the value of the unexpected that comes out of those sorts of mm. experiments and allowing space for those things to blossom. And, you know, you might come up with something you never imagined mm. um, just creating a little bit more space for these ways of working. Mm. I wonder how we can just become more comfortable with inviting the unexpected in. I think for, for, for some of us are kind of better at that than, than others, especially in, in those kind of workplace environments. I think that's probably where we feel least comfortable with maybe the unexpected generally. And um, yeah. nice to think, how can we open up ourselves a little bit more to it? Mm -hmm. Was there anything else that struck you listening to the conversation? Just the one to leave this conversation on, which is, I'm not sure what agenda dancing is, but <laughs> I want to find out. <laughs> Sounds great, doesn't it? Homework for the week. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review as it really helps us to reach other listeners. We're releasing episodes every two weeks, so do hit subscribe to ensure that you don't miss out on more playful inspiration. Don't forget you can find us at www.whyplayworks.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to join our growing community of people united by the idea of play at work, you can sign up to the Playworks Collective on our homepage. If you have any ideas for future episodes, topics you'd love to hear about, guest suggestions or questions about the work we do with organisations, we'd love to hear from you. Your feedback really matters to us, so please drop us a line at hello at whyplayworks.com. We'll be back in a fortnight with a brand new guest and we hope you'll join us then. <laughs>